According to the respected Robert Schumann Centre, nearly 20 million people died in World War I. But notice this. That figure includes 9.7 million soldiers and 10 million civilians. Just more than half of those who died were not in uniform. And it's not an isolated statistic. Back in 1987, an American academic, William Eckhart, calculated that up till then there had been 471 wars since 1700. On average, they'd lasted nearly two and a half years. Each century, 18th, 19th, 20th, had, he reckoned, seen more wars than the one before, and more deaths per war. In total, there'd been 101,552,000 deaths. And so far as Eckhart could discover, 50% of those deaths have been civilians. So why is it that on Remembrance Day we're treated, well in normal years, to marching bands and columns of men and women in uniform? Why do war memorials up and down Britain only record military deaths? Why in fact is Remembrance organised by the military at all? Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So pull up a chair. Let's see what happens. of the deaths from war in the last three centuries were civilians. And nowadays it's mainly civilians who die in war, not the military. Now we could argue over figures, but there's no argument over what happened in the course of the 20th century and into our own. Things have changed dramatically. In World War II, somewhere between three-fifths and two-thirds of all fatalities were civilians. But in 2001, the International Red Cross calculated that in modern warfare, 10 civilians die for every soldier killed in battle. Now, in Britain, you could reply the figures are unusual. Although something like 60,000 civilians died in the Blitz, and are, let it be said, nowhere remembered on Remembrance Day, Britain hasn't been invaded since 1688. Britain fights its wars abroad. So in terms of people killed, civilian deaths tend to be much lower in Britain than military deaths. Well, maybe you could argue that for Britain's own remembrance ceremonies, it's appropriate enough for the military to strut their stuff. The dead we're remembering are mostly theirs. But it's not quite so simple. For one thing, we should be remembering the dead of the places Britain still called its colonies while it was fighting its wars. Two and a half million Indians, for example, fought in British forces in World War II. It's another chapter that's been largely forgotten. But the outcome of the war, especially against Japan, would have been completely different without the Indian soldiers. 87,000 gave their lives. However, between two and three million Indian civilians died while the war was going on. They mostly starved to death in the Bengal famine of 1943, a combination of malnutrition and malaria that was almost entirely created by the policies of the British wartime administration. Prioritising the defeat of Japan, Churchill's government directed what scarce resources there were in India to its armies, rather than defeating its civilians. It was the only Indian famine in modern times that was not caused by drought. In fact, in 1943, rainfall was above average. And we should also look more deeply at Britain's own military dead. 
By the end of the First World War, which is when the tradition of Remembrance Day began, something over 7 million men had served in British forces. But at the start of the war, the British Army numbered only about 700,000, which means that 90% of the men who fought in the trenches or in the Navy and of the few who fought in the air were not professional soldiers, sailors or airmen at all. Three million of them were conscripted into uniform and had virtually no choice. The rest, well, they were volunteers. They were the men who'd been blacksmiths and shoemakers, teachers and accountants, postmen, shop assistants, and who'd suddenly, with a minimum of training, found themselves pushed out of their trenches and told to walk, or sometimes run, towards the enemy's machine guns. Now, the professional soldiers were scathing about the new volunteer army. They were not proper soldiers. They couldn't be trusted to do anything except the simplest, by which they meant the most suicidal, of manoeuvres. At the northern end of the battlefield of the Somme, for example, where all the men in the trenches were volunteers, they weren't even told that there were tunnels under no man's land. They'd never had any need to walk through the hail of German bullets that killed them. Now we could argue about what had made these men volunteer. They were told that the war would be over in a few months, so that the chances of ever facing the enemy were minimal. As we see in our series on the outbreak of World War I, the army itself knew that wasn't true. Others joined up because industrial recession had left them on the breadline and the army offered to pay them more. Some, of course, were gung-ho and wanted to see a bit of action. The army didn't disabuse them. And others were shamed into it. The poet laureate Rudyard Kipling famously pushed his hopelessly short-sighted son John into signing up and pulled strings so that his disability was disregarded in the recruitment process. John Kipling was 16. He went into action in September 1915 and was killed within minutes. His body lost until 1992. Rudyard Kipling never got over the death of his son. He wrote many lines of poetry reflecting on the loss of young soldiers. If any question why we died, he wrote, tell them because our fathers lied. Vast numbers, hundreds of thousands of ordinary men, died in the First World War as soldiers, sailors and airmen. The top brass were scathing about the ability of these volunteers and conscripts. They weren't soldiers at all, just civilians in uniform, and that's how they treated them. Well, you might say they did provide them with, well, tin hands. To which the answer is, not at first. The British Army didn't approve a design for helmets, in fact, until over a year after the war had started and by Easter 1916 had still only come up with a quarter of a million. Battalions were supposed to well, leave them behind for the next lot whenever they moved back from the front line. Until May 1916, British soldiers' tin hats were anyway so shiny that enemy snipers could easily spot them. They also slipped off all the time and were too thin to be much protection. What did they do? Did they eventually paint them or something? They didn't painted they? them. But surely, you ask, the army did provide its soldiers with gas masks. Well... Not at first. At first, they were told to pee on their socks and wrap them round their faces. Workable respirators didn't arrive at the front line until April 1916, 12 months after the first gas attack. The fact was that the British Army had made no preparations at all for modern war in Europe. It didn't even provide new recruits with uniforms or proper places to sleep during their training. Airmen were never provided with 
parachutes. Because, said General Hugh Boom Trenchard, who established the Royal Flying Corps, they would only encourage cowardice. Shocking. As a result, more pilots and their instructors died in training than in battle. Sailors weren't provided with either proper lifeboats or life jackets. Not, that is, until a campaign in the newspapers by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the famous creator of Sherlock Holmes. He shamed the Navy, at least, into making inflatable rubber collars standard issue. Conan Doyle's an interesting chap. He'd volunteered as an army surgeon during the Boer War and had seen, as he wrote to the Times, innumerable cases where a Bible, cigarette case, a watch or some other chance article has saved a man's life. Well, the implication was obvious. If in a shooting battle, even a percentage of bullets were stopped by the things soldiers randomly carried in their pockets, then countless lives could be saved if all the soldiers wore bulletproof vests. None, of course, existed, and the army had no plans to develop any. So Conan Doyle put his own money into a collaboration with Herbert Froude, who owned Frodo brake manufacturers in Derbyshire. Together, they produced the first body armour from compressed asbestos. It had a woven textile surface, and they tested it successfully. It was a major breakthrough in preserving the lives of combatants. Now, the man in overall command of the armies in Flanders was a friend of Conan Doyle's, an England polo player called Douglas Haig. Conan Doyle was, in fact, using Field Marshal Haig's diaries to write an account of the war as it went along. But Haig blankly refused to equip his men with his friend Conan Doyle's body armour. Only a coward, he was reported as saying, would want to wear it. Of course, as we see in our series on the Battle of the Somme, Haig was also the man who refused to use aircraft, to develop tanks, and who loudly declared that the machine gun was, quote, a much overrated weapon. But the old excuse that modern weapons were all rather new and it took time to get up to speed just won't wash. No, it won't. The spiralling of warfare into a stalemate of trenches, barbed wire and impenetrable defence had begun back in the 1860s in the American Civil War and had been demonstrated beyond any doubt in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-5. Haig and his brass knew all about it. However, they persisted in the bizarre belief that the First World War could be won by their cavalry. In fact, they spent more money on horses than feeding their men. We could go on to talk about the way that on board the Royal Navy's dreadnoughts, fire doors were routinely propped open during the Battle of Jutland using bags of explosives. The result was that 14 ships were dramatically sunk, several of them after a single hit, at the cost of 6,784 lives. The fact, I'm afraid, was that the British military's methods and tactics during World War I were mindless to the point of scandal. Hundreds of thousands of lives, ordinary men, were lost that need never have been. In the 1914-18 war, hundreds of thousands of soldiers and sailors and airmen's lives from Britain and its colonies were lost due to the incompetence of their military leaders. But surely, you ask, that was the First World War. By the time the Second World War came along, lessons had been learned. Well, you'd like to think so. But the story at the start of the Second World War was exactly the same as the First. Hundreds of thousands of conscripts found themselves living through the British autumn and winter in tents, without any weapons to train with. 
Men with valuable skills, like electricians and engineers, were ignored or given jobs that had nothing to do with their experience. By the end of 1941, the army was privately reporting a complete collapse of morale. The new recruits had lost all faith in their commanders and their training. In February 1944, the British Journal of Psychology received a manuscript from soldiers serving in the Reconnaissance Corps. It described the experiences of what it called khaki citizens and civilians in uniform. The author said that he was earning 19 shillings a week, far less than he would as a civilian. He said that the overwhelming feeling of most of the soldiers he knew was, quote, feeling browned off. And it was the same British army that 90 years after Conan Doyle unaccountably failed to provide body armour for many of its soldiers in Iraq, with the result that many needlessly died, and sent its soldiers driving about Afghanistan in inadequately armoured snatch Land Rovers so that dozens were blown up by Taliban bombs. Makes you ask whether the army, in particular, ever really cared about the ordinary men and women in its care. General Bull Allenby surveyed the carnage of 1915 and famously remarked, there are plenty more where they came from. The British Army in the First World War didn't even have any system for burying its dead. If they were buried at all, it was by their comrades, who might or might not find a way to put up a wooden cross. Nobody kept any records. Until, that is, a civilian, Fabian Ware, began recording the jumbled graves he kept coming across. Ware had been a journalist, and because he was too old to fight, had volunteered to command a mobile unit of the British Red Cross on the battlefields. In 1915, almost a year after the war started, the British War Office were at last persuaded that they needed to record the graves of their dead, and they turned Ware's volunteer unit into the Graves Registration Commission. But it took two more years before Ware could convince anyone that the graves would need not just to be recorded, but actually looked after. Mm. In 1917, Ware's Registration Commission finally became the Imperial War Graves Commission, which created, curated and still maintains British military war graves across the world. Were the principles laudable? They took years to untangle the scandalous chaos of the military's records of its dead soldiers and airmen. The graveyards they created were beautiful. But burying men according to their military ranks in identical graves on the battlefields does no justice to those men's experience. Most of their relatives were never able to visit them, and very few were able to fight the bureaucracy and put up the money for their loved one's body to be repatriated and buried at home. Nor was the mythical Tommy Atkins, the typical British soldier, remembered as what he really was, a father, a husband, a son, nor as a craftsman or a teacher or a local character. If he was lucky, he was a name, a number, a regiment, a rank, an age, a date of death, and a few words, a maximum of 66 letters to be precise, which his family had filled in on a form. Oh, and the Wargraves Commission reserved the right to reject the words you chose. And they would, at least until the late 1920s, charge you threepence halfpenny a letter to carve them. Well, that could come to about three days' wages for a dock labourer, or two for a baker. No wonder most of the graves don't have any personal inscriptions on them. And after all that, your dead relative would be forever remembered as a soldier. Something that in many cases he never wanted to be, and in no cases at all, had been for more than a few years. But the memory of many men isn't even a grave, but just a name engraved high up out of sight on vast triumphal arches, because their body is still missing somewhere out in the mud. Did the military meanwhile put up war memorials at home, in the British villages and towns that had sent their young men to fight? No, it was the local communities that did. 
was the best they could do for the bereaved left with nothing. One, just one of those missing men, one of those whose body had been found but never identified, was eventually repatriated. After an elaborate selection process designed to make sure nobody could ever discover who the poor man's body had belonged to, he was loaded aboard HMS Verdun and brought to London. On the 11th of November 1920, the unknown warrior was buried in a solemn ceremony in the nave of Westminster Abbey. It was a grand token of gratitude to those who had died and whose grave remained unknown. The various other bodies that had been candidates in the selection procedure were reburied, but nobody knows exactly where, breaking even the army's own code of honour that they should lie with their comrades. For some reason, Westminster Abbey had insisted that the body of the unknown warrior had to be completely decomposed. Well, it was a nonsense. It takes decades for a human body completely to decompose, and this was 1920. But the army happily jumped on the instruction and selected only bodies of men killed in 1914. Now, you might suspect that the army was only too glad to comply. It meant, of course, that it was more than likely that the unknown warrior it chose was one of the professional soldiers who'd started the war. The army wasn't knowingly going to give a ceremonial burial in Westminster Abbey to one of those millions of embarrassing amateur civilians who'd volunteered or were conscripted later. The government put out a statement saying that the unknown warrior could have been an airman or a sailor or even a man from one of the colonies. But they knew, of course, because the bodies had been dug up from the 1914 battlefields in Flanders, that it couldn't possibly have been true. One of the key figures behind the scheme was the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, Sir Henry Wilson. No words could tell, he barked to the Cabinet in his Irish accent, which I'm not going to pretend to imitate, how proud we officers and men would be to have one of our simple soldiers buried in Westminster Abbey. There would have been those around the Cabinet table, including the Prime Minister Lloyd George, who remembered Henry Wilson's earlier appearances there. His had been one of the most aggressive voices in the years before 1914, calling for an army to be sent to France as soon as war broke out. In the crucial weekend before the war began, Henry Wilson had coordinated the Tory party, the Tory press and key figures in the Foreign Office to batter the Liberal government into declaring war on Germany. Wilson told everyone that efforts for peace were a Jewish plot. As we see in our series on those days, had Wilson's self-proclaimed pogrom not succeeded, the First World War might never have happened. As it was, Wilson's long thought through plans for a quick campaign in France were trashed within hours and were proven, as events turned out, to have been completely unrealistic. The British Army was woefully unprepared and its strategy a disaster. Four years later, 885,138 men had died in uniform. 20 years later, the same thing happened all over again. So again this year we went along to our local churchyard and the bugle played the last post. There were no regimental flags this time, but some kindly figure from the local British Legion read Lawrence Binion's words, They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. And we all replied, We shall remember them. And so we should. But we quietly reflected that in 1914, when Binion wrote those words, he was a civilian working in the British Museum. Later, he volunteered as a hospital orderly. His words should be spoken by a civilian on a day when the military would be better occupied reflecting on its appalling abandonment of the young men and women in its care. 
For all the bravery of the ordinary soldier, sailor and aircrew, the military have wasted the lives of countless human beings. We should remember that. And among those who have died in wars, there have always been, and are increasingly, millions of civilians. We should remember them too.